Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, chapter 9. We began chapter 9 last Lord's Day. We will not finish chapter 9 this Lord's Day. Our ambition this morning in the text is to get through verse 31. And so our text this morning is Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. And uh, we will work our way, Lord willing, through verse 31, which concludes, by the way, this early ministry of Saul, who will eventually become the Apostle Paul. And then Acts 9, verse 32, pivots back to the Apostle Peter, and we'll do so for a few chapters. We will see Saul again at the conclusion of chapter 12, and then chapters 13 throughout the remainder of the book. We'll find a tremendous amount about the ministry of this man named Saul, the man we most often call Paul. So Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 31 is our text. When you arrive there, because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks to us in His Word. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, Luke, the human author or instrument in writing Acts, wrote these words as he was carried along by The Spirit of God. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, that is, to kill Saul. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join. The disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord." And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have shared with you all recently, if you've been with us, that part of the process of joining this local church, First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee, is sharing your testimony, your story with one of our elders and possibly one of our elders Wives, in fact, we're coming to the conclusion of one of our members' Membership Matters classes, and we offer these classes on a regular basis. It's a six-week class, and that class culminates in an elder interview, as it were, and that sounds quite intimidating, but part of that elder interview is sharing your personal testimony. As many of you are aware, what we often call our testimony really is just the story, the summary of how we came to know and treasure Jesus Christ. 
Our testimony is, is just often a conversion story. In fact, most testimonies that I have heard conclude with baptism or they conclude with believing in Christ for the first time. Activities we often summarize with the phrase conversion to Christ as, as I have shared even recently when I've shared my testimony with other people. I often will conclude with that, that moment in my life when I came to trust and treasure Jesus. And that's appropriate. Something wrong with that. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 31, we are reminded that our testimony does not conclude with conversion. Our testimony, our story, on account of God's grace through Christ, does not conclude with conversion and baptism, but continues into new lives that are lived in service to and ministry for Jesus Christ. And that's really what this text is, is all about. Last Lord's Day, we looked together at a section of Acts that retells the conversion of a man named Saul on the road to Damascus. And I've already mentioned this, but many of you know that Saul will eventually become called Paul. And uh, we'll get to that here in a few chapters. But at this point, he is still Saul, Saul of Tarsus. At this time, in the story of the book of Acts, Saul is transformed, but just a few verses back, and we observed this last Lord's Day, Saul was the leading persecutor of the church. In fact, Saul was the one who actually oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. As the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in particular, stoned Stephen as the first martyr for the church, they placed their garments at the feet of this man named Saul. So Saul was overseeing this martyrdom. Moreover, we are told in our previous text, that Saul had actually acquired letters from the high priest and from the chief priests, and he was now on his way to synagogues, various gatherings where the Jewish people gathered for worship, and he was to arrest any Jews who claimed to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. However, on his way to Damascus, with letters in hand, sanctioning him as a persecutor of the church, one, one that had received the, the official sanction from the high priest to arrest these Christians as he was on his way, Jesus Christ appeared to him from heaven. So Saul, the great persecutor of the church, actually never made it to Damascus. The risen and ascended Jesus appeared to him and converted Saul, as it were, out of a life of persecuting Christians into a life of being persecuted as a Christian. Converted him out of a life characterized by opposition to God and opposition to Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords into a life of surrender to God and surrender to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And as I mentioned a moment ago, our text then continues the story and it continues to tell the story of Saul after his initial conversion to Jesus. Saul's story doesn't end with he was converted to Christ and he was baptized. No, no, we learn so much more about this man named Saul. So to unpack the passage together, here's what we're going to do. You can jot these down if you're taking notes. We are going to identify three characteristics of Saul's life after conversion. 
Three characteristics of Saul's life after conversion. Now, notice that what we're going to do is we're actually painting a portrait of the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, the one who has been converted out of darkness into light. What does that person's life look like? Well, it looks a lot like this man's life, the man named Saul. Now, here are the three characteristics. We will first observe Saul's persecution for Christ. Now, remember, he, he was a persecutor Now he will become one who is persecuted. So Saul's persecution for Christ. Second, we will look together at Saul's participation in the body of Christ. So first, Saul's persecution for Christ. Second, his participation in the body of Christ. And then finally, after Saul's persecution for Christ and Saul's participation in the body of Christ, we will conclude our time examining Saul's bold proclamation. There it is. Third P, Saul's bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So persecution, participation, and proclamation. And these three characteristics really are to characterize the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, as we're going to see. Younger worshipers. So the younger ones in the room, parents, grandparents, I encourage you to pay particular attention to this this portion so that you can walk your younger worshiper along in the text. Younger worshipers, there are a couple of items I want you to pay close attention to as we move through this broader outline, okay? A couple of things I want you to look for in the text. First, how did Saul escape Damascus? It's just a vivid story, and I want you to pay attention to the story. How did Saul escape Damascus? From Damascus, we're told that they're watching the gates day and night, and they're seeking to kill Saul. How in the world did he get outside of the city? The text tells us. Second, two times in our text, Saul is described as preaching boldly in the name of Jesus, okay? So Saul is described as preaching boldly in the name of Jesus, I want you to think about this word boldness. What is it? What is boldness? And as you think about that, think about how it relates to what it might mean to preach boldly. Okay, so what is boldness and how is that related to preaching Jesus? We'll talk about some of that as we get to it in the text. And just would encourage you, parents, grandparents, guardians, interact with our younger worshipers in the text, even throughout the sermon, if you like. Well, back to our broader outline. First, let's look together at Saul's persecution for Christ. Notice verses 23, 24, and 25. When many days had passed, this is many days after his conversion to Christ, and he's been baptized now, the Jews plotted to kill him. How about that for a start? So Saul's been converted, he's been baptized, he started ministry, and then from the beginning, his ministry is characterized by persecution. They're seeking to kill him already. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but what happened? Younger worshiper, notice this, his disciples, that is followers of Saul, his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in what? In a basket. So they put him in a basket and through an opening in the wall because they can't go out the gate. They're guarding the gate. Through an opening in the wall, they let him down in a basket and off he goes. That's how he gets out. 
So at this stage in the narrative, remember, remember Saul is in Damascus and he's newly converted. We don't know how long, uh, how much time has, has lapsed at this point. In fact, if we compare this, uh, the story of Acts with Galatians chapter 1, it's difficult to put it all together. More time is passing than we realize often in Scripture. The, the biblical authors really are condensing oftentimes, and they're, they're often also doing what's called telescoping. They're bringing it all together, and uh, they'll often take even two events and talk about those two events as if it were one event. So that happens time and time again. We don't really know how much time had lapsed and passed by this point, but the text tells us many days, whatever that means. But early in Saul's ministry, he faces tremendous opposition, and this opposition comes from the Jewish people. Now, by the way, I think, I think this is a reference to the Jewish leaders. You could translate this just Jews. I think the ESV chooses Jews, but it really is a reference, I think, to the Jewish leaders. It has been the case elsewhere in Acts, and so here I think it's the same. The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Saul. Now, why were they doing that? Because now he's preaching Christ. The persecutor against Christians is now preaching Christ and becomes the persecuted alongside of Christians. Now, glance back with me at Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. This is where the Lord communicated to a man named Ananias. If you were with us last week, you, you perhaps will remember this. Called a man named Ananias to go to Saul. Saul at this point was blind and uh, he had already seen the Lord, this conversion experience. And Ananias was to go and lay his hands on Saul. And notice what the Lord says. The Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, go for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. We're going to see that throughout Acts. And kings, we're going to see that throughout Acts. And the children of Israel, we're going to see that throughout Acts. Verse 16, notice, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The commission of Saul included suffering for Christ from the beginning. Saul never knew a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. From the beginning, Saul knew that following Jesus Christ meant following in the steps of his master. It meant undergoing persecution for Christ. It meant tremendous sacrifice for the gospel of Christ. He had been purchased and, and he was eager to give his life in service to the one who had purchased him. Not only was he persecuted in Damascus, as a young Christian, but Luke informs us in verse 29, these words, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now, this is in Jerusalem, but they were seeking to kill him. Now, by this point, we might be thinking, everyone's seeking to kill Saul. And this is a matter just of a few verses, and Luke wants us to see this. The man who actually was orchestrating this persecution against the church, now he's been embraced by Christ, and he himself in faith has embraced Christ and the resulting persecution of what it means to follow Christ. Everywhere he goes, people are going to seek his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verses 24 to 28, Saul will, later Paul will, summarize his life. And uh, what a summary it is. I'm just going to read it to you. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. 
Here's how he described his suffering for Christ. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. By the way, he was stoned, left dead, and eventually gets up. We'll get there in Acts. And he goes to the next town and starts preaching. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Saul knew of no invitation, come to Jesus and have a happy, healthy life. Verse 27, he continues, in toil and hardship, this is verse 27 of 2 Corinthians 11, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and as a pastor, as a pastor, this one really, really stands out to me. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's Saul's life in a nutshell. Suffering for Christ. And he's glad to do it because Christ is worth it. And he knows, he knows, of course, that all of these things, this is the same apostle who would talk about this light and momentary affliction. I've often thought if he describes his own affliction as light and momentary, how might he describe mine? Now, while Saul's experience was certainly unique, I don't want us, I don't want us to land there, actually. We shouldn't fall prey to the trap of believing that Christ's commission for Saul to suffer as a disciple carries no application for us as followers of Christ. It does. This is the paradigm for following Jesus. Ask the persecuted church and they'll tell you what it means to be converted to Christ. You're signing up to lose your family. What does it mean to be baptized? You're signing up to lose your job, your source of income. Potentially, you're signing up to have your life threatened daily. This is what it was for Saul who would become Paul. And to a degree, it's what it means for us as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul will write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, later in his life, these words. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've often thought, if I'm not being persecuted, might it be that I'm not desiring to live a godly life in Christ? I think there's something to this, brothers and sisters. And I do. I speak to you this morning as, as someone convicted, not as someone who has arrived, as someone who is striving, not as someone who has obtained. But following Christ includes suffering for Christ always, always. Now, there are various degrees of what we might call persecution. Keep that in mind 
Various degrees. Some, as we have observed even in Acts, with Stephen received the stewardship of martyrdom. This, for the early church, this was the climax of discipleship. They even described martyrdom as becoming a disciple. Let me become a disciple. Ignatius will write. So some received that stewardship. But to be frank, most Christians throughout church history were not given the stewardship of martyrdom. Others, others of us, lose friendships. Others lose popularity. Younger Christians, those of you perhaps are about to start school again. No matter where you go to school, right? It can be public school. It can be private school. Well, I guess, I suppose even at times it can be homeschool. <laughs> Following Jesus Christ will demand that you sacrifice popularity, friendships. Following Christ will mean you assess Christ as more worthy than acceptance by others, more valuable. That his delight eclipses the temptation of living for the delight of others. Still others, other Christians are shunned or made fun of for faithfulness to Christ. Because after all, it's not cool to follow Jesus. It's not cool to refuse to participate in, in foolishness. Because everybody else is participating. Some of, some of us have suffered the harm or even loss of a relationship with a loved one, even a son or a daughter or a parent. Why? Because we refuse to compromise the biblical standard of a good and sovereign God. I've talked to families even in this church who are in tears because their loved one has concluded that they hate him or her. And actually... Actually, according to God's word, they're loving their loved one. I've, I've also talked to families who, when their children opt for a, a way of life that is contrary to the gospel, rather than in love, rather than in love opposing that way of life and speaking the truth in love, they, they adopt that way of life. Because after all, this is their son, this is their daughter. But dear friend, the temptation of doing so means choosing your son or your daughter over Christ. And so it is indeed opposition. It is indeed persecution that oftentimes come to us, comes to us from our own families, our own friendships, our own social networks and groups. All of us experience a degree of inner turmoil, actually, I think we can talk about this in some sense as, as being opposed. And this is, really, this is really odd to talk about. But in some respects, my own desires oppose me from serving Christ. Right? So my own desires are afflicting me. And I'm, as it were, being persecuted from within as I seek to serve the Lord. That is opposition indeed. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And sometimes you're the one persecuting. I'm the one persecuting. And by God's grace, we opt for Christ over our own sinful desires. And we do so with hope and confidence that God is at work in us and through us 
So in various ways, to varying degrees, and at various times, we are all called by Christ to follow in his steps. To follow the path of suffering, of opposition, as followers of Jesus Christ. And we do so with hope and confidence that God is using this temporary pain for eternal joy. And when we suffer, we have words of comfort from Christ like these words, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice (laughs) and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. So Saul was persecuted for Christ, and he serves as a kind of model for the rest of us. Secondly, secondly, I want you to notice Saul's participation in the body of Christ. Saul's participation in the body of Christ. Look down with me, if you would, at verses 26, 27, and 28. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple, understandably, right? That's understanding. Understandable, rather. They did not believe he was a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. What a beautiful picture of being a follower of Jesus, going in and out of the church. That's the life. Gathering with God's people and going out into the world with the gospel of Christ. Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I'm getting ahead of myself just a bit. Saul never knew a Christianity detached from the body of Christ. Never. He never knew that kind of Christianity. He never knew a maverick Christianity. He never actually came to believe that trusting in Jesus was merely an individual exercise and enterprise, and and he may or may not decide to go to church gather with God's people when they gather and come alongside of other followers of Jesus and hold others accountable and be held accountable. That never was anything in the apostles' mind. Never occupied space in the apostles' imagination of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. From the very beginning, Saul knew that being a follower of Christ meant following Christ alongside other followers of Christ. He knew that. Did you notice that in verse 26, after Saul had come to Jerusalem, Luke writes that he attempted to join. Do you see that? He attempted to join the disciples. I was sharing this with uh, Membership Matters class this morning. This word for join, attempted to join that verb, is used elsewhere in the context of marriage even. Matthew 19 is one of those contexts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is one of those contexts. It's, it's an intimate word. It, it's also used, by the way, to describe Philip as the Spirit called Philip not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was for us. The Spirit called Philip to go over and join the chariot, come alongside, participate with, walk alongside. The chariot. And so that's, that's the image here. Saul attempted to join the church in Jerusalem. 
And then observe that after the church in Jerusalem accepted Saul, as I mentioned a moment ago, he now he's described as, as going in and going out from among them, according to verse 28. In other words, he lived as a member of the church. I've said this so many times, and, and I'll probably say it so many more times because it really is a theme throughout Scripture. Following Christ, dear friends, is, is not listening to Christian music in your car, praying and reading your Bible in, in private, and attempting to live a generally upright life detached from engagement in the local church. That's not what it means to follow Christ and to live as a Christian. Following Christ includes all these things in the context of an engaged and invested relationship in the local church. And, and so it was for this man named Saul. And Saul loved the church, by the way, because he had come to know the Lord and Savior of the church. That's what fueled his love for the church. I love how Luke describes Saul's transformation. He meets the Lord, and then not long thereafter, he's serving the Lord in and through the church, alongside of others who know, love, and trust this Lord. It was the gospel that drove Saul to love the church, as he would later write in Ephesians 5, verse 25, he's exhorting husbands. Husbands, love your wives, he says. As Christ loved the church. That's what motivates Saul. Christ's love for the church. Well, how has Christ loved the church? By living in perfect obedience? By suffering in our place for our sins? By giving up his life on the cross? By being buried? By being raised from the dead on the third day? by appearing to many, by ascending back into heaven and taking his seat at the right hand of the Father and praying for us and by promising that he will someday return to this earth to make all things new. That's how Christ has loved the church, giving himself for the church. And, and dear friends, if you've not come to know this Savior and Lord of the church, then I would encourage you, don't leave this building without coming to embrace Jesus. Don't leave here without surrendering your life to Christ, without coming to realize that like Saul, and like everybody else in this room, and like the one who's, who's given the privilege this morning of preaching God's word, you are a sinner in need of a savior, and God has lavished you with his love by sending his son, the Lord Jesus. And if you'd like to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus, or to follow Jesus Christ, we would love to have that conversation with you. So after the service, you can grab one of us. Go to that room called Crossroads out there. Take a left out of one of these double doors, and on the right-hand side is the room called Crossroads. Go in there and have a conversation with an elder of our church so that that elder might come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn what it means to treasure the one who loved the church and calls us now to live a life of love for Christ and a life of love for Christ's church. Now notice, before we transition to our third point, notice that accepting Saul, at this point, the church in Jerusalem, accepting Saul was not easy for them. 
In fact, Luke tells us that while Saul attempted to join them, they were afraid of him and did not believe that he had become a disciple. In other words, what was the question in their minds? The question was, is he imitating? Is he doing so so that he might identify us? I mean, it was just recently that we had heard that this man was moving about with letters from the high priest, and he had the authority to arrest anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And so might it be that he is now claiming to be a follower of Jesus so that he might identify us and arrest us and persecute us. And so the church in Jerusalem said, no, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. But it it was through the kindness of a man named Barnabas We were already introduced, by the way, to Barnabas back at the conclusion of chapter 4. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? If you were with us, Ananias and Sapphira were examples of greed and deception. Barnabas was an example of generosity and love. At the conclusion of chapter 4, he was a man who sold his property and gave all the proceeds to the church in order to meet the needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ and in the church. And we were told back in in chapter 4, I believe it's verse 36, that Barnabas' name means son of, do you know this? Encouragement, I think I heard that. Son of encouragement. I wonder why. While the church in Jerusalem says, no, thank you, Barnabas says, come on, Saul, I'll walk with you. So what Barnabas is doing is he's identifying himself as a follower of Jesus. By the way, that's risky. That's risky. I'm a follower of Christ, Saul. In that moment, if Saul is imitating being a follower of Christ for the purpose of identifying and persecuting Christians, Barnabas has just signed himself up. So there's tremendous boldness in this. There's tremendous charity, hospitality, and ultimately faith. And Barnabas serves as an instrument. He actually, he actually brings, we're told, he brings Saul to the apostles. I wish I could have been in that meeting. All the apostles are gathered together and in comes Barnabas with Saul. And he bears testimony on behalf of Saul. And by the way, he doesn't do this without evidence. It's not a kind of blind faith, okay? It's generous, it's charitable, it's hospitable, it is indeed faith, it's confident, it's bold, but there is evidence. Saul has been persecuted as a follower of Jesus. Why would he receive persecution for preaching Jesus if he actually hadn't been changed by Christ, Barnabas says. And Barnabas introduces Saul to the church in Jerusalem. And then we're just told that Saul begins his life in the church in Jerusalem. And then eventually toward the end of our text, he's, he's going to be sent away to Caesarea that's right on the coast there, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, northwest of Jerusalem. And then he's going to go from Caesarea to Tarsus, which is, I don't know, about a 300-mile boat ride north. So he's going to begin his journey not long hereafter, but here he is accepted by the church in Jerusalem through the kindness of a man named Barnabas. Well, we've discussed Saul's persecution for Christ as a model for us, a template 
for what it means to follow Jesus. We've discussed his participation in the body of Christ also as a model for us as followers of Jesus who are called to participate in the body of Christ. And then third, we will conclude our time together considering Saul's bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. His bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Look down with me, if you would, at verses 28 and 29. So, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. What is he doing? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now, that title's been used before, back in chapter 6. Here, it refers to, I believe, Greek-speaking Jews who are not Christians. It's a broad term. Here it's Greek-speaking Jews who are not Christians, and so Saul is disputing with them. He's debating them. He's debating them from the Word of God. He's proclaiming boldly the gospel of Christ from all of Scripture, and then notice the end of verse 29, but they were seeking to kill him. Luke uses a verb to describe Saul's activity in Jerusalem and also in Damascus, and the ESV translates this verb, preach boldly. He was preaching boldly in Damascus. He was preaching boldly in Jerusalem. And when we hear the word preach, I think we oftentimes think about what I'm doing right now, right? In, in fact, you know, in, in the South, this is, this is true in Texas, it's true in East Tennessee as well, um, you know, a, a title of endearment from church members uh, to a senior pastor is preacher. Hey, preacher, right? And it is, it is. We refer to our, our pastor often as, as preacher. Um, and so we often... We often limit this activity of preaching to what takes place on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or even a Wednesday night in a church service from the pulpit. And that's not necessarily what the book of Acts is describing. It includes that, but it's broader than this. In fact, this word to preach in Acts simply means to declare the gospel or to share the gospel of Jesus. I'm preaching Christ, indeed, I hope, each week, and we've said this before, right, over and over again throughout Acts. Why? So that you then take the same message and you go out through your relationships, in your households, in your workplace, in your schools, and so forth, and you preach Christ from all of Scripture. And that's the idea in the text. So this can and should happen in a sermon, but it is, it is never limited to a sermon. It happens informally in conversation with others. But it's, it's not simply a verb in our text, a verb that just means to share Christ. It's a verb that actually communicates boldness. It's boldly sharing Christ, boldly declaring Christ, boldly proclaiming Christ. And so, younger worshiper, this was one of the questions I, I mentioned to you earlier in the introduction to the sermon. Let's consider this word for just a moment, boldness. What, what, is, what is boldness? And, and as I thought about it, I thought, well, it's, it's similar to courage, isn't it? To be bold is, is close to being courageous. And I've often been told this, I've, I've come to believe it, that, that courage is not the absence of fear. Rather, courage is something that motivates us to push through the presence of fear. Isn't it true? If courage is the absence of fear, then I've never met a courageous human being. Now, 
you know, in some of my younger days, I know I'm still in my younger days, but younger than I currently am. I, I might have argued, you know, I ain't scared, right? And lied to everybody when I said it because I wanted everybody to believe that I wasn't scared. No, no, we all experience an amount of fear depending on the context for various reasons. And courage isn't the absence of that fear. Courage is, is the resolve to push through that fear and yet still do what is, what is right, what is true, what is, what is beautiful. I think boldness is quite similar to this. It's not the absence of fear necessarily, but it's, it's the resolve to do something even when one is afraid. That's boldness. So boldly preaching Christ is being willing to preach Christ even when you're afraid. Might even say it this way. To boldly proclaim Christ is to share Christ even when doing so may cost us something. Even when doing so costs us a great deal. That's the description of Saul in the text. He's boldly preaching Christ. In other words, he's risking a lot as he shares Christ with others. And so time and time again, we are told by Luke as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, and they sought to kill him. And they sought to kill him. That's boldness. And we tend to view Paul, don't we, Saul, at this point? Can't help but call him Paul. We tend to view Saul as someone who didn't experience Fear. Nonsense. Nonsense. Rather, the description really communicates that in the midst of fear, on account of God's grace, empowered by God's spirit, he pushed through. He pushed through to boldly share Christ even in the midst of fear and even when doing so cost him a great deal, potentially his life. And then Luke concludes our text, and we'll wrap up with this. He concludes our text with another summary of the growth of the church. He does this a lot in Acts. He's done this multiple times. Acts chapter 2, he did it. Acts 4, he did it. Acts 5, he did it. He does it again here. Verse 31, notice with me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. doesn't sound like the church is having peace. On the one hand, the church experienced peace because the great persecutor was no longer persecuting the church, but there were plenty of others who were willing to step into that role. No, this is a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that passes and eclipses all circumstances in Christ so the church experienced peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Saul, the great persecutor of the church, had joined the persecuted and was now boldly sharing the gospel of Christ as a participant in the church. Well, recently, I closed a sermon by quoting from one of the most famous hymns of perhaps all time, really, since the golden age of hymnody, a hymn written by John Newton, Amazing Grace. We were reminded when I quoted this sermon, I don't, I don't it may have been last week or the week before, I don't recall, 
We were reminded of Newton's words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And that's really all of our story, isn't it, if we know Christ? And that was Saul's story. However, that wasn't the end of Saul's story. And it's not the conclusion of our story. It's not even the conclusion of the story according to Newton. Our testimony as followers of Christ will continue throughout life. And so Newton added these words. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And notice, tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And what? Grace will lead me home. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a joy it is to look at your word and to find in your word a portrait of the transformed follower of Jesus Christ in the person and ministry of a man named Saul. A man who served as the great persecutor of the early church. A man who actually took the life of Stephen, your servant, but who now kneels next to Stephen in your presence. What a picture of the body of Christ, Father. You rescue sinners. So rescue us this morning. Transform us and call us to perseverance amid persecution for Christ to a commitment to participate in the body of Christ and to boldness in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen.